to Matthew chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, there's these black Bibles in the seats in front of you that you can feel free to not only use but take home, especially if you don't own one. Matthew chapter 3 and these black Bibles can be found on page 808. 808. And when I refer to the chapter numbers, that's the larger numbers on the page. And then the smaller verse numbers will help you find where we're at in the text. We're going to cover chapter 3, verses 1 through 10 this morning in our study through Matthew. John the Baptist is the subject of our study today. His person, his ministry. And what's interesting about John the Baptist is that all four gospel accounts, so again, if you're not familiar with using a Bible, the Bible is broken into the Old and New Testament, and the New Testament is primarily revolved around the coming and the ministry of Jesus and how that is the culminating end of the story of the Old Testament. And when Jesus comes, all four Gospels, so Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the first four books of the New Testament, they're all telling the same story about Jesus, but from different angles, if you were to put it that way. If you've ever watched sports, sometimes you'll be watching a play, and let's say people watch football later this afternoon, and there's this great touchdown, and then uh, they are going to show you the top angle and the end zone angle, and then maybe from above and from the side, and, and that's similar to what the Gospels are doing. They're, they're showing you the same play. Jesus comes and fulfills the Old Testament story. But when you see it from the different angles, from Matthew's angle, from Mark, Luke, and John, you get to see different things that you wouldn't have seen from the, the, the one angle by itself. So one of the things that's interesting, though, is all four of the Gospels, as they start out, talk about John the Baptist. John chapter 1 it begins talking about John the Baptist. And Matthew 3, Luke 3, and then Mark chapter 1. The very early stages of the, the adulthood of Jesus. So you have a couple accounts of his childhood. And Luke, we have a story of him being a, a young boy. But primarily, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are focused on Jesus as a man in what we would understand to be around his 30s. And we know very little details about what he was like in between the age 12 to 30. In fact, the Bible records nothing about those years. What it, they all do record, though, is an account about John the Baptist. And so it should, A, perk our ears up to say, hmm, we should figure out what this John the Baptist thing is about because it seems important to all four of the angles about getting to know Jesus. Secondly, the reason I want you to really listen up is right now, starting this Sunday, I'm going to start using these Matthew messages to help us as a church for the next two chapters, chapter 3 and chapter 4, really consider our mission as a church because the themes in these chapters have, I think, just very clear connections to who we are as Embassy Church. So if you care at all about this church, if you want to know and get to know our church better, you've come at a good time, you know? If you're already a member and you want to be reminded of why we started, then you're going to hear these things in these chapters. If you're new to us and you're learning, okay, what's, what's it mean to get involved and be a part of Embassy Church? I think we're going to see that quite clearly starting in John the Baptist's ministry and then as we move into Jesus' early ministry. So let's begin by looking at chapter 3, verses 1 through 10, and see what we can learn about John the Baptist for us as a church. 
In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you? To flee from the wrath to come, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. We're going to pause there and we're going to Just consider these first 10 verses for the most part this morning. Here's the big idea for today's message. I think as we get to know John the Baptist, it helps prepare us for knowing and following Jesus the Christ. As we get to know John the Baptist, it helps prepare us for what it means to know and follow Jesus the Christ. In other words, if you were to put it in a question, I'd say if John the Baptist is so important that he's in all four Gospels, if he's so important and great and mighty, well then how much greater does that make Jesus if John the Baptist is just merely a servant of Jesus? So let's get to know John this morning. I want to consider three things. Let's get to know John as the man, John and his methods, and then John and his message. Let's first begin with John the man. When you read over this passage in these first 10 verses, what do you learn about John? Well, first is his title, John the Baptist. And really, that's going to relate to one of the methods that we'll see next, that he baptized people. But it's primarily, I think, to just help you see that John the Baptist is different from John who wrote the fourth gospel and later letters in the New Testament. There's at least three different Johns in the time of Jesus that you might get confused. I think they're just trying to clearly say, no, no, John is the Baptist John, the baptizer. And so we see clearly in this passage that he does baptize people and that this is a mark of his ministry. We notice quite early on in this passage in verse 1 that he is a preacher, that he lived in the wilderness of Judea. And so if you want to think that's be north of Jerusalem, it'd be south of Galilee where Jesus was. So if you think of the Mediterranean water, you know, as you all are looking at my hand, that's Mediterranean water. And then there's this line here that would be the, the edge of Israel. And then in, right in there you'd have Jerusalem. And then you'd have this desert area in between Jerusalem and then above that where the Jordan River connects to the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea. There'd be an area of Galilee. And we know from chapter 2, that's just where Jesus left off in our story, is that he moved up to Nazareth, which would be north of Jerusalem, north of this desert area. And so John's in the middle of this. That's where he's at. We know that John is a preacher living in the wilderness of Judea, that he is fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. 
And we'll talk more about that later, but just acknowledge that that's what he is. He's, he's fulfilling Old Testament prophets like Isaiah. We noticed in verse 4 that he has interesting clothing and appetite. He wore camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. He ate locusts and wild honey. And we know that this man was popular. Did you catch that in our passage? It says in verse 5, Then Jerusalem and all of Judea and all of the region about the Jordan were going out to him. This guy was not just some crazy guy in the wilderness of Judea that has no following. He has a huge following. This, this is a significant ministry. So he was popular. And he was also intense. Did you catch that? He's the kind of preacher that doesn't pull punches. He's not very politically correct. He's happy to say the hard things. You're going to see a little later that he's actually quite sarcastic as he's talking to the Pharisees and Sadducees. And I think that list pretty much covers what we learn about John the Baptist in this section. And so as we overview those things, he's, a, he's John the Baptist, different from the other Johns. He's a preacher. He lived in the wilderness. He fulfilled Old Testament prophecy. He had strange clothes and ate locusts and honey and was popular and intense. Does, does all of that lead you to think, wow, I'm impressed. This guy is, he's something special. How many of us are probably thinking, this guy's weird. Yeah, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not impressed yet, Pastor Phil. I don't know why I'm starting to see, oh, well, if John the Baptist is so great, well, then how much greater than must Jesus? I'm not there yet. I, I, I wouldn't be surprised. Just looking at the facts on the surface, it seems as if like, yeah, this guy calls people a bunch of baby snakes. He eats bugs. He lives in the wilderness. He seems kind of rude. So why is it that all four Gospels seem to mention that this guy is great and that this is important for you to know? Well, let's remember that he is a prophet. And he is the first prophet after a long, long Silence. That's not even 30 seconds. Some of you might be wondering, did he lose his place? Is he getting teary-eyed? What's going on here? That's not even 30 seconds, my friends. When we, every single week, do a moment of silence, and I ask, let's quiet our hearts, let's quiet our minds, how easy is it for you to get distracted in silence? To wonder, okay, what's next? Let's move on to the next thing. My friends, John the Baptist broke 400 years of silence from God speaking. Could you imagine that? Could you imagine being a people and saying, I'm regularly hearing from God and he's speaking to us and he's communicating to us and then it goes silent for not 30 seconds but 400 years God does not speak. One of the reasons why John the Baptist is in all four Gospels and why you need to realize this ministry is significant is because he breaks through the silence. And what he has to say 
is really, really important for us to hear. He is preparing the way for Jesus. His message is about Jesus. Finally, a prophet who's going to speak. In fact, he is the last and final Old Testament prophet. He's like the bridge between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant that comes in Jesus. If you would, turn your Bibles two pages to the left. At least that's what it is in the black Bibles around you. Two pages to the left. Malachi chapter 4. If you've ever wondered how the Old Testament ends and the New Testament begins, this might connect some dots. Look at the very last verses of Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. That is the last thing the people of Israel heard through a prophet. As far as we understand, this is, this is the last word from God. And chronologically, this, this does fit as like the last book of the Bible. Although the Old Testament is not chronological. Any of you doing Bible reading? Like it, Malachi fits Genesis is the beginning, Malachi is the last part of the Old Testament, but here here we do see the last words of God, and they are that I will send you Elijah the prophet. And so for 400 years, people are waiting for Elijah the prophet to come. Now some of you might not know this, but Elijah, as far as we can tell, he never died. He ascended up and then like left earth, and there was no visible sight of his human death on the earth. And so people are thinking that he's just going to come back down one day. And what we find in all four Gospels, and even from the mouth of Jesus himself later on in Matthew, is that John the Baptist is the Elijah prophet. Again, you may not know this, but if you read back in your Old Testament history, you look at 2 Kings, and you learn about Elijah, you're like, this guy is one of the greatest prophets that ever walked the nation of Israel's land and spoke. He did miracles. He confronted the the false prophets of Baal. He spoke with sarcasm. His message, his methods are so similar to John the Baptist. He embodies Elijah. In fact, some of you might be wondering, like, he sounds weird. He, He wore that camel's hair and He's out in the wilderness. Listen to this. 2 Kings 1.8. Speaking of Elijah, he wore a garment of hair and a belt of leather around his waist. Come on. Of course. Of course John the Baptist is not giving us just, oh, that's, that's cute information that he wore a camel's hair and a belt of leather around his waist. Oh, that's kind of cute. There's not wasted details in Matthew's gospel, my friends. If you knew your Old Testament, as we talked about last week, you would know. Camel's hair, belt of leather around the waist, that's Elijah. That's just like Elijah. In fact, later on in Zechariah 13, verse 4, false prophets tried to dress up like Elijah to deceive the people. And what did they do? They'd wear camel's hair and leather belt around their waist. There's like this theme through the Old Testament about the clothing of a prophet, of the greatest prophets. Guess who's wearing that clothing as 400 years of silence comes to an end? John the Baptist. 
The reason we don't think about John the Baptist as great is because you don't read book one, as I mentioned last week. Because you've not learned the story of Israel and realized that they've been waiting and waiting and waiting, and here he comes, finally. You just think and read, oh, he looks weird. Listen to the words of Jesus in Matthew 11. Maybe a year from now we will get to this point, but before then, Truly, truly, Jesus says, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John the Baptist. That should make it pretty clear. Truly, truly, I tell you, those born of women, there has risen none greater than John the Baptist. And then he goes on to say, yet anyone who is in the kingdom of heaven is now greater than even John the Baptist. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been suffering violence and violent taking it by force for all the prophets and law prophesied until John the Baptist. And if you are willing to accept it, John the Baptist is the Elijah who was to come. Jesus makes the connection explicit in Matthew 11. John the Baptist is the Malachi fulfillment of prophecy. The spirit of Elijah is on him. He is wearing the Elijah clothes. And this is why people in Luke 3.15... Paul Castoni read to us earlier in the service Luke's version of this story. Did you catch verse 15? Let me just remind you, Luke 3.15. And the people were in expectation and were questioning in their hearts concerning John the Baptist whether he might be the Christ. John the Baptist is so great, people think that he's the coming Messiah. Okay. Are you getting it yet? If we understand John the Baptist, the man, the better you get to know him, the greater Jesus will be if you realize how great in the minds of these first century hearers, how spectacular this prophet was. Here's a clue straight from our text. Look down at Matthew 3, verse 11. Matthew 3, 11. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. That sums it all up. All four Gospels are making the same point about why they're telling you about John the Baptist. John the Baptist is a mighty prophet. Did you catch that in verse 11 of our verse? He's not saying, guys, you know, I'm just a humble guy. I I don't have much of a ministry going on. He's like, no, I am a mighty prophet. I am mighty. He acknowledges his mighty ministry. Flocks of people are coming from all over Jerusalem and Judea. Capture John the Baptist and his greatness. Only so you will finally realize if John the Baptist is that great, man, how much greater must Jesus be? That's what you're supposed to do when you read this section. Wow. So let's put this in today's day. Have you ever seen on like television or commercial, or maybe you've experienced this, where some great celebrity just knocks on someone's door and surprises somebody and they're like fainting, oh, you know, and falling over, taking pictures and like, wow, this is amazing. Like one example of this is I remember a sports team to hand out the season tickets to the season ticket holders, the the players of the team go and surprise people at the door and say, hey, I'm here to deliver your season tickets. And it's like the captain of the team. And they're like, oh my goodness, you know. That sort of scenario. I want you to picture that, okay? I want you to picture somebody in today's day falling over on the ground like, wow, this, this, this is somebody. And I want you to imagine as they knock on the door, they say, listen, I'm not here to give you season tickets. I'm here to tell you that somebody's about to come to your house today. 
And they're so famous, they're so powerful, they're so great, they're so wealthy, they're so whatever word you want to use. I don't even have enough clout to hold the door for them and take off their shoes and, and, and take their coat. Like, I'm, I'm in a diff, they're in a different atmosphere, a different category altogether. Are you starting to feel what's going on here in this passage? Does that help bring it home here? Could you imagine the most famous, idolized person that is in your life or in this community or culture, the president of the United States, some famous celebrity coming to your door unannounced and just saying, hey, I got one message for you. Somebody's coming. And I don't even hold a candle to this person. Wouldn't you be having a hard time? Be like, who, who could be more famous than you? Who could be greater than you? This is what's going on in the days before Jesus comes and starts his ministry. This is what John's purpose is. John is a pointer. And he is mighty. And even as mighty as he is, he is still rightly understanding his place in all things. In fact, I would call him a humble man because he doesn't want the credit. He doesn't want the attention. He is preparing the way for not just a king, but the king of all creation, God himself. If you look down at verse 3 in chapter 3, you'll notice that Isaiah says that a voice in the wilderness is preparing the way of the, and what's the word? The Lord The voice in the wilderness will prepare the way for the Lord. Follow this concept. If the Lord is Yahweh in Isaiah's passage, which it is. Yahweh, by the way, is the personal name for God. So insert Yahweh into that verse, Lord. That's the Hebrew word that's being translated for you. Prepare the way for Yahweh. If Yahweh is God... And Jesus is the Lord that John the Baptist is preparing for. Who's Jesus? He's the Lord Yahweh. Why do I make that point? Because Jehovah's Witness, Mormons, atheists, skeptics regularly say, the Bible doesn't actually say that Jesus is God, does it? Here's another example of the clarity of the scriptures telling you that Jesus is not just another prophet, not just another teacher. He's not just another great man, a moral rabbi in the Jewish day. He is, in fact, Yahweh in the flesh. This, my friends, is central to us in our mission as a church. When we gathered together in the first very meeting of this church, we said our mission as a church is to point to Christ to glorify Christ. It's on the banners all around you when you walk in. The first thing you're greeted with is welcome. We exist as a church to glorify Christ. We want to be like John the Baptist. No matter how great our church is, we should only be seen as a pointer to the greater glory and greatness of Jesus Christ. That's why we exist. If you've ever heard that word glory and you're not used to religious language or maybe there's other context for it, Think of it like this. It is a synonym of magnify. We exist to magnify the majesty of King Jesus. Not magnify like he's really, really, really small and we're the telescope that makes him bigger so everybody can see him. No, 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 no. Magnify like a telescope. 
We exist as a church. The reason why we gather, the reason why we go through the scriptures is so that we can magnify and highlight the great glory of Jesus like a telescope is trying to help people who can't grasp the majesty and the greatness of the stars in the sky. They already are great, but to us they seem so little. And the problem is because we're so far away. It's not because they're actually so little. And so what the Bible does week in and week out in our church gatherings is is serve as a telescope to say, whoa, Jesus is big. He's great. He's glorious. We should center our whole lives around him as the sun of our solar system. We're not the center. Jesus is. So if we learn about John, we see him as a pointer We see him as a great man, but even as great as he is, no matter how great he is, Jesus is infinitely greater. That's point number one, John the man. As we move on to point number two, let's look at John's methods. And they're quite simple. Verse one, we see that he came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. And then in verse six, we see that he was baptizing all those around him in the river Jordan as they confessed their sins. So preaching baptizing, and confessing. Let's look at each one of these as we consider John's methods. First, preaching. One way to define preaching, especially in context of this passage, is heralding. Do you guys know what that word means, heralding? Herald's like a, an old English word a lot of times. We don't use it, but it's like a, a newscaster, an announcer of the news because they didn't have television, they didn't have radio, they didn't have people to give news reports like we do in the mediums that we do. So instead a herald would step up on a big box in the square of the town and he would start shouting with a loud cry, hear ye, hear ye, have an announcement. In fact, the passage that's quoted here in Isaiah, it goes on in verse 9 to say, go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, and herald the good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, and herald the good news. Lift it up and do not be afraid and say to all the cities of Judah, behold your God. That's Isaiah 40, the passage that's being quoted for us. There's going to be a voice in the wilderness and Jerusalem. You need to be a herald. You need to get up on top of a high mountain. You need to announce to all the cities around you, behold your God. That's what preaching is. It's boldly announcing the good news. Did you catch that in our passage that I just read you? Herald the what? Herald the good news. Boldly announcing the good news of what God has done in such a way that it demands a response. This is key. The sort of news that we want to give to people is not news that they can say, oh, I'll take that or leave that. That's, that, was, that was helpful information, Pastor Phil. Heralding news is the kind of news that demands a response. And when later we look at the actual message, you'll see what this means. That's number one. Preaching is one of the methods John the Baptist used. Number two, we see baptism related to confession of sin. Now, I want to talk more about baptism next week as we see Jesus get baptized and we see the contrast in verses 11 and following And then in a couple weeks, Lord willing, we're actually going to baptize a couple people. So the timing is great for us to really think more about baptism next week. For now, know that baptism amongst Jews was strange. They did not do it. This was not like some Jewish practice that John the Baptist is like 
starting and then like redefining what it means. There was no practice of Jews to get baptized, and that's in fact who he's baptizing. Primarily Jewish people. But it is people from all over the region. And there was a baptism that was associated with non-Jews. So imagine somebody's an Egyptian or a Babylonian or an Assyrian. And if you decided you want to convert to Judaism as your religion, you would get baptized in the water. So that's the only context we really have of this practice of baptism in the days of Jesus until John the Baptist comes. So realize that it's strange that John is baptizing Jews and realize that it's even stranger that Jesus gets baptized. And if you're interested in learning what that's about, then come back next week. Lord willing, that's what we will cover. For now, Notice that baptism is connected with the confession of sin. Baptizing while confessing sin. And this helps us really point to what this baptism was all about that John was doing. In Ezekiel 36, 25, you might want to jot that down, but Ezekiel 36, 25. God said that he would come and sprinkle clean water on Israel, and they'd be clean of their uncleanliness, and from all their idols, God will cleanse them. It's most likely that John is giving them a symbol of cleaning and washing away their sin, which is why you see baptism in water connected with the confession of sin. So, we as a church, we exist to do what? Glorify Jesus Christ, like John the Baptist points to Jesus. How do we do that? By making disciples of all nations and and baptize them. We magnify Jesus by making disciples, and we make disciples by preaching the good news and by confessing our sins before God. These two practices are two things that Christians in this church and every Christian at every church should be engaged with. Think about it this way. In order to prepare for the coming of Jesus, John committed himself to preaching. In the very next chapter, in chapter 4, Jesus' ministry was defined by preaching. When Jesus sends out his followers two by two, he sends them to preach. When in the New Testament we find what the mission of our church is, it is to declare and preach good news. In other words, if you call yourself a Christian, wouldn't it then follow that you would be about the practice of preaching? Wouldn't that make sense? To prepare for Jesus is preaching. Jesus preached. He sent people out to preach. The whole church is marked by don't give up preaching in the New Testament. Have you ever noticed that as we gather together, more time at embassy is given to preaching than any other practice or worship discipline? Are you thankful that we don't have a 40-minute moment of silence? Some of you might wish we sang for 30, 40, 50 minutes. But at this church, we have seen one of the central ways to make disciples is to preach. And in fact, we're hoping that all the things we do in our service, not just the actual act of preaching, but the songs that we sing, the prayers that we pray, the scriptures that we read, are in fact preaching and communicating God's word. That's why when you open your bulletin every week, it says we sing the word, we preach the word, we pray the word, we give in accordance with the word. I want to make sure you realize that long sermons don't necessarily mean that they're better sermons. In fact, maybe that's something I need to preach to myself. 
But one way we make disciples is by preaching. I think this should continue to be a focus of our weekly worship, and it should be a focus of your everyday discipline. Every day. You should continue to grow as a preacher. Does that sound weird to you? Do you see the church as primarily about the one or two guys that stand up like me and preach, and you just listen? Or do you see me as an equipper to teach you how to preach to yourself, to your friends, your family, and to the lost world around you more faithfully? Is this an equipping session in addition to a worship session? My friend, I want you to see it as an act of worship, that as we preach Christ, your heart is, is instructed and it's encouraged. But I'm hoping that many of you will start to, if you haven't already, see this as me teaching week by week for you to learn how to preach better. You should preach to yourself every day. Have you learned how to preach to yourself? Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a man that lived in London, England, and preached for many, many years. And he has a very helpful book called Spiritual Depression. And I have quoted this several times at Embassy, and you're going to hear it one more time. Have you ever realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Lloyd-Jones says, take the thoughts that come to you the very moment you wake up in the morning. You have not originated them, but they just start talking to you. They bring back all the problems of yesterday or the worries of today. What do you think about that? Most of your unhappiness in life is due to you being a bad preacher. You don't talk to yourself. You just let the worries and concerns and the messages of the world just keep infiltrating your head and your mind and your heart, and you're just all anxious and depressed and discouraged. Instead, you got to talk. Say, no, that's not true. And you identify lies that are coming in and bombarding you. How much happier could we be as a church if we, was a, we were a church full of excellent preachers, especially toward ourselves? Let me continue the quote from Lloyd-Jones. This is very instructive. This is equipping time for you all, okay? Somebody is talking. Who is it? It's yourself. Yourself is talking to you. The main art in this matter of spiritual living is to know how to handle the talking to you. You have to take yourself in the hand and address yourself. Preach to yourself. Question yourself. Start saying to your soul, soul, why? Why am I so downcast? Why am I in this business of being depressed? Turn in on yourself and exhort yourself. Say, hope in God. Instead of muttering around, depressed and unhappy the way you do, then you must go on and remind yourself of God, who he is, what he has done, and what he has promised he will do. That sums it up, friend. Look in at yourself, not to be all down and introspective and wallow in your pity, but preach and say, self, put your hope in God. What God do I believe in? What has he already done for me? What has he promised he will do for me? How much good would it do to us if we began to learn how to preach to ourselves? Preaching. 
This is one of the methods of John. Secondly, John confesses sin. We need to learn as a church to speak God's word through preaching. And we need to learn to speak God's word to each other when we confess sins to one another. Did you know that the Bible commands Christians to confess their sin? We have one mediator. His name is Jesus Christ. He is our only high priest. There is no other priest. So when I talk about confession of sin, I'm not talking about you making an appointment with me this week and say, all right, Pastor Phil. Now, you, you could. That's, that's an application we'll get to in a second. But it does not need to be me. I am not a priest. In that sense of it, in the Catholic understanding of priests, we don't have confessional little boxes for you to share your deepest, deepest, darkest secrets. First and foremost, we should confess our sins to God, as Paul reminded us earlier in the service and said, God is faithful and just, and if we confess our sins to him, he will forgive us. This is why we actually have prayers of confession in our church service. Did you notice that? Often, quite regularly, we do prayers of confession because I want to encourage in a regular way, and so do the elders and leaders of this church, for the members of the church to be reminded that one of the basic disciplines of a Christian is to confess our sins. This is how the people prepared for the coming of Jesus, and this is how the people live after the coming of Jesus on the earth. This is not what you'd find in the normal church growth manuals for how to have excellent worship services to grow your church. Four years ago when we got started embassy, we actually did prayers of confession every single week. And I remember having conversations with people being like, I don't like that. That's, that's different. I'm not, I'm not so sure. Do we, do we have to do it every week? No, no, we don't have to do it every week. But one of the reasons we did was because of how biblical it is and because of how abnormal it is for most churches today. My guess would be if you were to visit 10 churches Anywhere around the United States, nine out of ten probably will not do a prayer of confession when you gather with them. This is like a lost practice. This is central to the preparing of Jesus. This is central for what it means to fight sin together and speak out about our sin. If you're here today and you're, you're not a Christian, you're a visitor, and you might be like, wow, I don't know about this church. You said at the beginning, Pastor Phil, that you're going to tell us information about what your church is like. It sounds like your church talks about sin a lot. Is that what I want to get signed up to, to become a Christian and talk about my sins? And, and, and honestly, it's kind of true. We do talk about sin a lot in this church. This is not like an abnormality. I think the members around you, if you talk to them, you're like, no, we do. We do confess our sins like two, three times a month in our normal services. We talk about sins with one another. Like that's a normal part of the culture of this church. But my hope is that if you're here and you're a visitor, you're maybe even not a Christian, that you don't see that as like a negative and discouraging thing because here's what I want you to do. If you hear embassy church people talk about sin, I want you to notice if they do not also talk about their Savior. Because my hope and prayer is that we do talk about sin, that we're not afraid to talk and confess our sins to one another. But the greater hope is that we point people because of who Jesus is and what he's done to the ultimate Savior, Jesus Christ. My challenge to you then is to see if we, in fact, hold up to that end. That we are a church community that is okay of talking about any of our deepest, darkest secrets to God first, but then even to each other. For those of you who are members of this church and you have, in fact, confessed your sins to God and you would call yourself a Christian, 
James chapter 5 commands us to confess our sins to one another. It's actually just said in that way, therefore confess your sins to each other. Confession of sin in prayer in the community of Christians is a powerful and effective way to bring healing to our lives. That's what James 5 says. I wonder how many of us really believe that today and need to be reminded that one of the reasons we're struggling in our sin is because we've not confessed it to God and then not to one another. If we really believe that confession of sin is a powerful and effective healing practice, well, then I would imagine that would typify the way we live together in each other's lives. Now, this, of course, needs wisdom. You probably shouldn't share your sins and every single one of them and every detail to every single person all the time. That's not what I'm suggesting. But maybe to a few trusted friends in this church. Maybe to a pastor or an elder. Someone that you feel really will preach the gospel back to you when you confess your sins to them. That they won't quickly be like, oh, whoa, what? You did what? My friends, that won't help develop a culture of confessing sin. It will become a culture of our church if all of us remember that we're all sinners. And that they who confess sin to us may have different sins, but we're all equally sinners. Let me conclude this point by giving you a very helpful quotation from Bonhoeffer's book, Life Together. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a martyr in Germany, a Christian, during the time of the World War II. And Bonhoeffer wrote a very short little book. I had several guys get together and read it, and we all said this was one of the most helpful things in that book. He says, why is it so easy for us to confess our sins to God than to our brothers and sisters? If God is holy, 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 as we sang earlier, and if he is sinless, but our brothers and sisters are sinful like us, wouldn't it be easier to go to the brother or sister than to the holy God? So we should ask ourselves whether or not we have in fact been deceiving ourselves as we even confess our sins to God. We should ask ourselves whether we've been confessing our sins really just to ourselves and granting ourselves our own forgiveness and absolution. Maybe this is the reason why so many Christians have countless relapses of sin and the feebleness of the Christian obedience. Could it be found precisely in the fact that we're living on self-forgiveness and not actual forgiveness from Jesus? Self-forgiveness can never lead to a breach of sin. This is only accomplished by the judging and pardoning word of God. And God gives us that word through our confession with our brothers and sisters. When we speak about our sins to our brothers, it breaks that cycle of self-deception. A man or a woman who confesses their sins in the presence of another knows that he is no longer alone with his sin. He experiences the presence of God and the reality of the person. As long as we confess our sins in private to only God, then everything remains in the dark about our sin. But in the presence of another brother or sister, the sin is now being brought to the light. But since that sin must come to the light sometime, it would be better for it to come to the light between me and my brother talking than on the last day in the piercing light of God's final judgment. In the same way, we should have open confession of sins to our brothers and sisters to ensure that we are not deceiving ourselves and assuring ourselves of forgiveness when in fact we're just forgiving ourselves. 
mutually, brothers, confess our sins to God in order so that we can find God's forgiveness in Christ. Church, let us put these two methods into practice, preaching God's word to one another, to ourselves, and especially after we confess our sins. We need to get experts at being able to preach the gospel to people and hope and grace after somebody unpacks all the things they're struggling with and their fears and insecurities. Well, let's conclude with our final point. We've looked at John as the man and his methods. In verses 1 and 2, we get the essence of his message. John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, and he says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's quite a simple message. It's probably longer than that. This is probably just shorthand. There's a biographer trying to, like, sum up something and say, Look, the essence of John's message was repentance and getting ready for the kingdom of heaven. Repentance is the word that means to return, to change directions. Literally, it means to change your mind in the Greek, but it's referring to the Hebrew word that means to turn back to God. And that's the essence of what this word means. So turn back to God because heaven is coming here on earth. It's very similar to the Lord's Prayer for many of you that have heard that. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And John is declaring that's coming. The kingdom of heaven is coming on earth as it is in heaven, and God's will is going to be performed here on the earth. So repent, return back to God. In verses 7 through 10, John's message becomes quite clearer when the Pharisees and Sadducees come. And these men are most likely religious leaders of a a denomination like Baptists, Catholics, Methodists, Presbyterians. That's that's the, the broader term is Christian, right? But, but we are a Baptist church, traditionally, like in, in the, the tradition of this church, we associate ourselves mostly with Baptists. But then there's a Methodist church that meets just down the hall at the other end of this building. And then there's Catholics and there's Lutherans right across the street here. But generally speaking, people call, oh, that's Christians. In the first century, there would have been Jews, that's the broader term, and then there would have been these different groups like Pharisees, Sadducees, Essenes. And there would have been these men called zealots. And so think of that. Some of the people that were, oh, there's the Pharisees and there was the Sadducees. They had different theologies and beliefs about God, but they were generally in the Jewish faith. They come out and he says, you're a bunch of snakes. You brood of vipers. Now, brood is for babies, like baby snakes. And this is not an endearing, like, oh, cute little baby snake. Like, when you read it, if you're like, that sounds a little harsh. It is. Snakes are bad. Where do snakes first appear in the Bible if you're a Jew? Page three. It's not good. Snakes are the deceiver. Snakes are seen as really bad throughout all of the Jewish scriptures. So imagine being called, hey, you snakes. In fact, you're not just a snake. You're a son of a snake. Can you all think of a derogatory phrase we might use? Son of a, and then follow, fill in the blank. It's not too far off what he's saying right here. You son of snakes. You baby snakes. You're not just a snake. You've come from snakes. And that's why he then talks about Abraham. You think that Abraham is your father? No, no, no. Satan is your father. You come from the snake. This is intense, isn't it? So why? Why is he saying this? Because he says they know God's wrath, but they're not living like it. This is a rhetorical, sarcastic question. Oh, who warned you of the wrath to come? Hmm? Well, the Bible that you say you read and follow? How about that? 
That's really the way this word and sentence should be understood. He is pointing out their hypocrisy, that they're dead in their souls, that they have not repented and turned back to God with good fruit that's bearing with life. Instead, they're like dead trees, and the axe is ready to lay and cut down the tree and throw it away because it's useless. That's the message John the Baptist has come to bring. Repent in a way that bears good fruit. Return back to God so that your soul comes alive with love and joy and peace. And do not think that because you have some sort of family tradition that you grew up in the church, because your mom and dad were pastors or missionaries, or that because you've been in the church your whole life, oh, well, I'm good. Just because you have Abraham as your father does not mean that you are truly one of God's children. And then he uses this little pun. He says that I could just, God could take these rocks right here, these stones, and he could make his own children right from these rocks. And there's a play on words because stones and children have almost the same word, the way they sound. And so there's this interesting play on words that he's doing as he continues to sarcastically and rhetorically jab at their hypocrisy. It's intense. And it might make us think, wow, this man does not, he does not know what love is. He lacks grace. He's like all fire and brimstone, you know, like, whew, I don't want to be at that church. Is that what our messages should be like? Is our takeaway as a church, let's preach like John the Baptist? Well, I'd say yes. Yes, we should. The essence of our message to some degree should be repentance, turn back to God. Now, depending on who the person is, If they're hypocrites, sometimes we need to speak very sternly with them. Maybe even help them realize how hypocritical their lives have been. We should, in fact, warn people of God's wrath like he does here. We should tell people that God is a God of judgment and of holiness. But we should also realize that the entire message is a message of repentance because of the goodness of God's comfort and grace, and the end of the exile is now over. The whole point of quoting Isaiah 40, if you know anything about Isaiah, it's two halves. People call it the mini-Bible because there's 39 chapters for half one, 39 books of the Old Testament, and there's 27 chapters for half two, 66 total chapters. So Isaiah is like the mini-Bible. And the first half is all like judgment and heavy condemnation for people in their sin. The second half starts with these words, comfort, comfort. Comfort, comfort. Whoa. Isaiah 40, the coming of John the Baptist is about a message of good news about comfort that's coming. Verse 2 says, speak tenderly to Jerusalem in Isaiah chapter 40. Proclaim to her that the the year of the Lord's favor is coming and that God is going to forgive her from her sins. John is not just a, a fire and brimstone. Let me just try and make fun of people and get all up in their face and wrath. You know, that's not him. He is announcing the goodness of God's comfort. He is announcing the goodness of God's message that the exile is now over. If you were to sum it up, John preaches the comforting grace and hard truth, and so should we. We should be able to learn the difference between preaching the law that convicts and the gospel that comforts. The wrath of God and judgment that drive us to repentance to God because of how gracious and merciful and forgiving he is. This is what I believe John's message is primarily about. It is what our message should be. There are people that need to realize, maybe even in this church right now, that God is a God of wrath, he hates sin, and he will punish sin. You should respond with repentance. It'll be much better for you to repent now than try and wait someday. 
The cross shows us that God will punish sin, and in fact, he has. In Jesus Christ, all sin has been punished. Either Jesus will pay for your sins or you will. You want to turn to Jesus Christ, turn back to God through Christ's blood? Then repent, receive him, believe in him, believe him afresh now, receive his comfort and his tender mercy. If not, there will only be judgment and wrath awaiting us. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we want to give you great thanks now for the message of the gospel, that you are so good. You're so good that you do, in fact, deal with evil and sin and punishment. And you punish sin. God, we thank you that you are not a God who turns a blind eye or looks the other way when evil is all over this earth. But, in fact, you hate it. You can't stand to look upon it, and you want to do something about it. How comforting it is for all of us in this room to know that's the God that's ruling the universe when atrocities happen week in and week out. How comforting it is to know that you are a God who wants to deal with all evil, including the evil in our hearts. Thank you, God. Thank you for revealing yourself to us in this way, and thank you for revealing that you are a God of mercy who has dealt with sin by bringing Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, the one who was to come and take away all of our sins to bring God and humanity back together again. Thank you, God, for accomplishing this work through Christ and Christ alone. I pray, God, that all of us now in this room would consider the hard news of this message and respond. In Jesus' name, amen.